Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking unusually about politics. I'm joined by Andrew Jimson, the author of Jimson's Prime Minister's Brief Lives from Walpole to May, and the cartoonist Martin Rosen, who's illustrated it. Welcome both. Andrew, to start with, you set out in your introduction sort of the qualities necessary to be a Prime Minister, which you've harvested, obviously, from your wide and deep research into the subject. Yes. Um, and what are, the, what are the most important ones? Well, this is still evolving, actually, because when I read out these 12 um, qualities in, in Alborough, Zan Smiley, a great contributor to The Spectator, said that actually he thought that one of the most important things for a prime minister, or one of the distinctions between the ones who succeed and those who don't, is that you should enjoy it. And he was covering poor John Major, who palpably didn't enjoy it. So I think an ability to enjoy it is very important, but probably the most important thing of all is courage. Uh, I, and actually, one other thing, you ha- you have to be able to perform U-turns. You can't be mercilessly consistent. If you get something wrong, you, you have to somehow change direction. And that is very, very difficult because it's a very humiliating thing to do. But, of course, the most successful post-war prime minister we've got was notorious for being anti-U-turn. Was that... She was fantastically cautious, though. And because she wouldn't U-turn on the poll tax, I mean, in fact, she lost her capacity to be pragmatic. She's a very bizarre mixture a very remarkable mixture of, of sort of pragmatism and and ideological motives. But she did, she was very, very cautious. She certainly didn't have, I mean, she, she was frankly a much better practical politician than Edward Heath. She'd learnt from his, you know, taking on the miners at the, in the middle of winter when you haven't got any coal stocks and all that sort of nonsense. One thing that surprised me was that you say that actually the Prime Minister is rather a weak figure and that in a sense they're there to be a sort of punch bag and... You know, one thinks of at least the Prime Minister being Prime Ministerial, being strong leader, and you're looking for all that sort of thing. You know, one thinks of sort of Churchill as the great example. Well, Churchill is, 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 a, is the great example. In fact, he's such a great example, he slightly blots other people out. But even he was great because he had the fortitude to be weak and to admit that after Dunkirk we'd suffered a colossal military catastrophe and that things were very, very bad. And that's why one reason why people believed what he said. The Prime Minister has very, very few powers. What they have is patronage. In the days of Walpole, he could, he could give both himself and members of his family and, and MPs as needed. He could give them offices of great profit. Nowadays, you just get the offices, but for some reason, the MPs still want them. As you as you see from Alan Clark's diaries, they yearn for these footling posts. And the Prime Minister has well over 100 of them to give out. So that is the that's all the power of the Prime Minister really amounts to. You mentioned Walpole. Shall we go back? How did it all begin? One of the things that's quite striking and strange that our first Prime Minister didn't actually share a language with his monarch, but that didn't seem to be an impediment. No, the monarch needed someone who could run the show, someone who could get the money out of Parliament. I mean, these Germans, George I was a firmly middle-aged man who liked living in Hanover. He didn't like living in London much. He wanted to visit Hanover and he needed someone who could manage Parliament for him. And Walpole turned out to be the person, and as you say, they conversed in dog Latin, because Walpole wasn't a linguist, and the king would rather have spoken French, actually, but of course could also get by in German, neither of which suited Walpole, so Latin it had to be. Then George II tried to get rid of him, but but after about three days had to have him back, because Spencer Compton, who he put in, a sort of subservient courtier type, um, to take over... Uh, couldn't even write the speech that was, was the first thing that the king had to deliver to the Privy Council. So back Walpole came, and he he did it for nearly 21 years, longer than anyone since. Five and a half years is the average thing. Prime ministers are, are usually fairly transitory figures. But what, the one thing Andrew hasn't said pertains to Walpole is that prime minister is a phrase coined, like the words Tory and Christian, originally as an insult. 
that he was the prime minister because he was taking all the ministries under his own control in order to profit from them. And uh, in fact, the year before Andrew dates the first prime minister becoming a prime minister, in 1720, there's this fantastic anonymous cartoon of Walpole's enormous bottom being kissed by a supplicant minister trying to get through between his legs down the corridors of power. So I think it's, I think it's a, rather, yes. a, a rather wonderful compliment to the ramshackle British constitution that the person in charge of it is bearing the name which was originally intended as an insult and a joke. Well, that also kind of keeps going to this thing of the, the weakness of the Prime Minister. When you say the constitution is rather good because the Commons... You know, the Prime Minister has to be able to take the yeah. Commons with them. And you say, for instance, in the, you know, the British system, we couldn't end up with a Trump. No. We couldn't because, uh, I mean, Farage hasn't even got into the House of Commons, but supposing he did or some Trumpish figure did, the other MPs just would not, you wouldn't get 325 of them to, to support you. So it's a very, very good warning against, demo- or, or check on demagogy. And I was quite, I'd rather lazily assumed, I mean, I think they're all comic in one way or another. You look at Martin's drawings and you'll see that, but there's surprisingly few duds, actually, because one of the things you have to do is stand up and say things in the House of Commons, and, if, and people can tell within a, a couple of sentences if you're very, very stupid and inadequate. So very stupid and inadequate people never become prime minister. Can we hear say something for my favourite prime minister? Yes. My, my, my favourite is the one nobody has ever heard of. In fact, I'd heard of him before Andrew had. Is yes. this the one, one who, uh, for whom there is no biography? No, uh, that's Spencer Compton, actually. No, no, no this but is... Godrich, yeah. Godrich. Yeah. Frederick Robinson, known as Prosperity Robinson, sarcastically, because there was a harvest failure when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, and then there was a bank collapse, and he asked Lord Liverpool if he could resign because it was too difficult. And then <laughs> Liverpool had a stroke, and, you know, and uh, that was the end of Liverpool, and Canning then moved him to the House of Lords as Lord Godrich. And... Uh, Godrich. and um, because George the Fourth couldn't stand the idea of Wellington because of Catholic emancipation, he got Goderich to cobble together an extremely unstable coalition of Canningites and Whigs. And Parliament wasn't sitting throughout the four months of his premiership. And he was an extraordinary man in many ways, was Goderich, because he, he introduced the Corn Laws to the Houses of, House of Commons and got his house destroyed by a mob as a consequence. He introduced the abolition of slavery in the British Empire to the House of Lords, served in every ministry from 1815 to 1835, of whatever political stripe. And when he resigned as Prime Minister, because it was such an abjectly appalling time, which he hated every single second of, he cried so much the monarch had to lend him a hanky. Oh... There's a sort of theme emerging, at least in the early early years, which surprised me, because we now think of these people desperate to become Prime Minister, you know, sort of yeah. foaming at the mouth for the, the opportunity to kind of stab someone in the back yeah. and take the top job, that half of them didn't want to do it at all. But the, but the weird thing is, I think that, that still pertains, because if at least two recent, well, a current and a recent Prime Minister, who had obviously spent a long time thinking, that would be wonderful, isn't that marvellous, what a marvellous thing to be Prime Minister? And Gordon Brown and Theresa May obviously hate doing it. And, you know, Theresa May must wake up every morning, first of all, thinking, oh, my God, I'm still Theresa May, and then thinking, oh, my God, I'm still Prime Minister. <laughs> and, you know, I think we should give her a break, let her, you know... I think in. she's determined not to go. I think she really wants to carry on and show that she can do it after all, just as she, she well, showed she could... How long have we got to wait? <laughs> well, I know. Well, she's got... She's but got actually, she's got one of the qualities she's a very, Courage. Yes, but, she has. But yes. also not enjoying it. 
So where does that yes. leave her on the scale? Uh, they, maybe she's starting to enjoy it slightly more if she feels she's getting a slight grip on it and using her weakness very, very cleverly because everyone, both factions, both sides think that they might get someone worse from their point of view if she were to go. But I don't think she'll be allowed to fight another election. Now, obviously, we do spend a lot of time, particularly in sort of day-to-day newspapers, like, oh, God, Theresa May's useless. And, you know, yeah. before that, we were like, oh, David Cameron's useless. Yeah. I mean, I had in this very spot not long ago the American academic Stephen Pinker, who's argued that if you take the historical long view, things are much better now than they've ever been at any time in history before. Is that borne out by your work on prime ministers? No, in my opinion, not. I think the early ones, some of them were very good. Part of the trouble is that they were distinguished as orators and they didn't allow people into the House of Commons to record their speeches. So Pitt the Elder, who's probably the greatest, most volcanic parliamentary orator ever, we just have a few... We have the impression he made on people, we don't have the actual words. So unless, until we invent a time machine, we're not, no one is ever going to be able to write his life in the way that it deserves to be written. But the, the best ones were absolutely brilliant. I think in the 19th century they were probably intellectually more distinguished than in the... 20th century. I remarked on this to a, a rather grand labor lady in Hampstead, and she said, well, that's democracy for you. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the best of them were bloody good. I mean, Peel and Gladstone. Peel got the first double first ever at Oxford because they just reorganized the system in maths, a genuine double first in maths as well as classics. A lot of them were eminent classicists, but bloody good at figures as well. So they weren't just sort of languid sort of um, members of the upper classes who had wandered in because they thought they'd be good at being prime minister. They were serious, professional people who actually understood all sorts of dreadful things to do with, with taxes as well as, as well as other things. And those speeches, there is a lovely detail, and I can't remember which prime minister it was, who was invited to, you know, these scurrilous characters, parliamentary sketch writers. Yep. I think you, you were yeah. one for quite a long I time. I was, yes. There was a move to kind of ban them or criminalise them yes. or turf them out. yes. And which was this Prime Minister? He sort of it, it was Henry Pelham, and he said they make better speeches for us than we can make for ourselves. He was a very charming man, actually. He was Prime Minister for quite a long time, and now entirely forgotten. Dr Johnson, he did this as a young man, as a way of earning money. He could do a thousand words an hour in longhand of these speeches. He'd just know that sort of Sam Leith was on one side and Martin Rosen was on the other, and... Rosen was a Whig, so he decided not to give Rosen the best of it. But about, <laughs> about, about 30 years later, at a dinner party, someone was saying that one of the speeches Pitt, the elder, made was better than anything by Demosthenes and most fantastic speech ever. And Johnson then said, well, I wrote that speech in a garret in Exeter Street. Uh, and he actually stopped doing this because he was mortified to find that people thought these were genuine speeches. <laughs> so he's one of the few journalists who's ever been upset to actually have his what he wrote believed rather than... Yes, <laughs> he's troubled by integrity. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, but it's like yes. the, you know, the great oratory of Winston Churchill, which we all know, we can all hear it in our heads, was of course spoken by the actor who went on to play Colonel Danby in The Archers. <laughs> because, <laughs> because he'd make the speech in the House of Commons, they'd again go off to Broadcasting House with the text and it would be read out by this man. Well, well, but you're an authority on oratory. Do uh, you think it's got better? No, it hasn't, of course. But it still matters because people like Cameron and indeed Obama became got the top job by giving better speeches than the rivals. Yes, it certainly still seems to have some sort of importance. Actually, we've heard Martin's favourite prime minister. Do you have a favourite? I love lots of them, actually. I love Canning, who has, whose statue stands around the other corner in Parliament Square. But I think my favourite is Disraeli. He's such a preposterous person, so disreputable and such unpromising beginnings being born into the Jewish faith. Luckily for him, his father fell out with the synagogue when 
young Israeli was 12, and because the synagogue wanted to levy a fine on him, because um, the father, who was a distinguished man of letters, wouldn't accept some senior post within the synagogue. So he resigned from the synagogue and had his children baptised into the Church of England. But then he got the Israeli article to a solicitor. The Israeli wanted to cut a dash in the world. He set up a newspaper called The Representative to rival The Times, and he puffed some South American mining shares uh, in pamphlets, which he wrote himself. And the shares were totally fraudulent, all collapsed. The newspaper was very, very bad and did not compete with the Times. That also collapsed. And Disraeli then wrote his first novel in which he made fun of the other investors who were very, very cross, <laughs> who were people like John Murray, who, who was his father's publisher. So the idea that he was then, after that start, and mired in debt for the rest of his long life, eventually going to become at the age of 64 prime minister, was few would have foreseen that because he just seemed ridiculous. He dressed in an absurd way as well. And he pretended to know about fashionable life in his novels and didn't. So he was an utterly ridiculous figure. But by persistence and genius and by knowing something, a great deal about human nature and by seeing how, in many ways, repulsive Gladstone was, he won through. Also, also Michael Foote loved him so much he named his dog after him. That's true, yes. In the process of research, both of you obviously are deeply learned in British political history, but... Presumably, you came across things you didn't know or surprised yes. you or that changed your view of things. Can you? I mean, Lots of I, things. I imagine reading Andrew's work, yeah. well, the same would have happened. Can, can you say what... I think there's a real problem with history, actually. History involves forgetting things as well as learning them because any ambitious young historian wants to do new stuff. So you have to leave out some of the old stuff. And some of the old stuff, no doubt, deserves to be left out. But other parts of it are absolutely fascinating um, but get sort of suppressed. Or someone says that the story of Washington and the cherry tree isn't really true, which and it may well have been made up by Parson Weems, in fact. But So things which really stick in your memory are, are somehow lost. To, so I, I, a lot of it was rediscovering amusing stuff, yes. No, there is... There, is, there are amusing things about almost... Every, well, I think about every prime minister, actually. And, I mean, Edward Heath, for example, not, in, not apparently a, very, a man with a great sense of humour, but when he was asked after the fall of Margaret Thatcher... Is, is it true you said, rejoice, rejoice, which is what she said um, after the recapture of South Georgia from the Argentines? He said, no. What I said was, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. <laughs> <laughs> and he got his big chance, of course, because Sir Walter Bromley Davenport, a Tory of the old school, a, a grenadier and a boxing enthusiast, saw a smartly dressed man leaving the House of Commons just before a vote, told him to stop because he thought it was a, must be a Tory MP. Bromley Davenport was a whip. And when this man wouldn't stop, Bromley Davenport kicked him downstairs. And unfortunately, it turned out to be the Belgian ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> so Bromley Davenport had to be sacked, and Heath, who was altogether, would never kick someone. I mean, he actually was a martinet in a funny sort of way, but he wouldn't actually kick people downstairs. He, was, he got his big chance. Was Bromley Davenport a Grenadier Guard or something? He had been in the Grenadier Guards, yes. 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 He expected people to obey his orders. The most interesting thing I've learned from reading Andrew's copy was actually about the relationship between Churchill and Attlee, because I think we have an image yes. that there is always that wonderful tension uh, that kind of Manichean tension between double acts. So it's Lenin and McCartney, Stalin and Trotsky, Liam and Noel Gallagher. So we always assume that you know, there is Attlee described as a, a modest man, with much be modest about a taxi draws up in Downing Street with Attlee in it, nobody gets out and all this kind of thing. And in fact, this isn't true, that, that Churchill had an enormous admiration for Attlee, because otherwise Churchill wouldn't yes. have got the job, because Attlee refused to serve under yes. Chamberlain or Halifax. And, and I thought that was, I mean... Um, I thought that was actually a, a sort of a, a bit of a revelation and also very comforting because for my money they are, you know, 
Churchill was the, the best prime minister because he saved us from national extermination, mostly because he, you know, drank a bottle of brandy for breakfast and would. Yes, uh, but you, you didn't set up a Cohen's hotline, did yeah. you? Yeah, no, no, exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> and then at the rebuilt a shattered nation by bringing, you know, okay, so he was a he was a Labour man, but he was actually making a country fit for heroes or bearable yes. for heroes anyway. And so between them, they were actually an extraordinary double act, I think. Now you see, Martin, this is, I'm, I'm you, you've just said some nice things about some politicians. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> Yeah, you know, as a contemporary cartoonist, political cartoonist, it's, you know, it seems like the rocket fuel for what you do is also powered by, you know, rage and loathing and disgust and dismay. Perhaps I mischaracterise you. Does it affect the way you draw people if you're going back and sort of say an 18th century figure towards whom you might not entertain any particular feelings of political well, engagement? That's, that's where where Andrew's copy came in because you could then link into you know they were womanizers or they were bores or they were sort of Martin previously their yeah. parrot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, uh, yeah. Campbell Bannerman and his parrot. That was yeah. that was a wonderful thing. Yeah. Again, this is pets of the great prime ministers. Yes. I mean, um, yeah. it'll outsell all the other books put together. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't the prime minister, but Archbishop Lord's tortoise survived him by a hundred years. Yes, yes. Did you find yourself in agreement with Andrews? Copy. Do you occasionally find that you know, no, this one was useless, or I loved this one, or I hated uh, this one? The thing is, Andrew's a very skillful writer because he's actually telling a story. He doesn't actually put his judgment in there, in the sort of this person is a bad person or a good person. Uh, it's it's a factual, straight down the line history. So I think it's more enjoyable if the reader can make up yeah, their own mind. Yeah. And I, I had I had to do this over a much longer life when I wrote the life of that great, though still relatively obscure statesman, Boris Johnson. It, it, I tried to write a life where you could either end up thinking what a wonderful man or what a terrible man, because I think the evidence for both views is contained in the... And in, in, these things are in miniature. I mean, none of them is more than a dozen pages long. But there, again, I hope... I bring out, for example, or try to bring out what a bloody awkward person Churchill was, and totally unreliable in party terms. And, um, ratting and re-ratting. Ratting and re-ratting, a, a deuced awkward colleague, as Chamberlain called him. Although in the end, loyal. But um, I mean, in my in my drawing of Churchill, we were doing a signing up in Keswick a couple of days ago, and somebody said, "You know, um, do you normally draw Churchill like this?" And in fact, I'd, I'd gone out of my way to try and draw Churchill as looking a bit like a sort of bumptious seventy-year-old schoolboy, because I think to a large extent that's yeah. what he was. And that was where his strength lay. Was well, he had him sort of going around in these romper suits he wore? Yeah. He always sticks in mind, doesn't it? A sort of adult and, onesie. Yeah, and all babies look like Winston Churchill. He had an amazing yeah. capacity of putting himself at the centre of things. But, of course, complete, well, not completely frozen out. Baldwin did bring him in in the early 20s. But you had these businessmen who were men of great capacity in their way. Bonalore, Baldwin, and then Chamberlain, who dominated the show and who brought Labour in. Chamberlain was very rude to the Labour people in the 20s. He treated them like dirt. Baldwin told him not to do it, but he said, well, intellectually, they are dirt, which is a horrible thing to say. And is one reason why Labour, of course, would not support Chamberlain in 1940, because he didn't have the, the sort of magnanimity and the delight in making... I mean, Churchill preferred coalition governments. He didn't want to just have a narrow... Uh, and there's a story of him in old age in the, in the, in the lift that has a car meeting a Labour member and on establishing this with a Labour member saying, I, I, I'm a Liberal, always have been. But the, uh, none of I think it's very difficult actually to be a boring Prime Minister because the actual position is such a strange paradoxical one where you have to be a sort of, in some way, brilliant, but also you have to be ordinary enough to be acceptable as a representative of, of the whole nation. I have to say, the one 
18th century Prime Minister to whom I injected some malice in my depiction of them was the Duke of Newcastle because of what he did to Admiral Bing. Oh, yes, that was very cowardly. What did he do to Admiral Bing? Well, he had him shot. shot. Uh, encourager les autres. Well, there were pleas of clemency, uh, and he, but he didn't advise the king to pardon Bing. And, and, and this was because we'd lost Minorca. All wars in which this country is involved start very badly, and the Seven Years' War was no exception. And Bing had sailed to Minorca and then didn't seem to have made a proper attempt to stop the French taking it and sailed back to Gibraltar. And the city of London were very cross about this and came to see the prime minister. And he said, don't worry, he'll be shot. Uh, which he shouldn't have said, <laughs> or worse to that effect. Sorry, the exact, the exact, sort of the exact words. I mean, it was it was a typical evasive politician. Yes, he was cowardly. Actually, he was, well, he had a lot of abilities, but he he wouldn't either take decisions or. I mean, Pitt, the elder, really protested, resigned because of the Bing thing. Voltaire, of course, wrote his stuff about poor encourager les autres. It made us look ridiculous and um, was a great injustice to Bing. And then, in due course, Pitt got brought in, and the British Empire was founded. Uh, which isn't something that people don't celebrate now, but at the time it made them think that Pitt the Elder was certainly the greatest man in Europe. Any retrospective pardon for old Bing? Oh, well, I'm not in, I think there has been a bit of agitation lately about it. Is it I, I'm not in favour of retrospective. I think we should have a few more retrospective prosecutions. Oh, yes, very, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the way forward. Thank you both very much indeed for your time. And Jimson's Prime Minister's Brief Lives from Walpole to May with wonderful illustrations by Martin Rosen is in the shops now and will be followed almost immediately by Jimson's Cats and Dogs of the <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.